Any sufficiently advanced technology is indistinguishable from magic. Welcome, everybody, to the Into the Impossible podcast, a production of the Arthur C. Clarke Center for Human Imagination at UC San Diego. I am your very fearful host, Brian Keating, co-director of the Arthur C. Clarke Center, and today it's a great privilege and, uh, and joy to welcome uh, a friend from a completely different discipline in cosmology, and that's none other than uh, Dr. Martin. Uh, Dr. Martin, I just had a PhD student graduate. His name is Martin, uh, so my 16th student uh, got uh, slipped in there, confused with you. Uh, Dr. Adam Reese. Adam, sorry for that slip-up. How are you doing today? I'm good. How are you? I'm doing good. Uh, you know, we first met, I was trying to think back when we, when we met, uh, and I realized it was a while ago and, uh, and that was probably during this Templeton foundation sponsored young scientist competition, blah, 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 to find the best scientist under age 40, which you know, I have to say I did win. And what I'm curious about, I think all my <laughs> listeners are, are curious about, are, are you ever going to get over that, Adam? Are, are, are you ever going to be no, able to live that? I, I, I'll tell you, I've had in, kind of an inferiority complex since then, especially around you. <laughs> yes, um, yes, but, uh, sure, yeah, sure. no, it was what I remember, right? It was, uh, it was Charlie Towns's 90th birthday. Yeah. Uh, and, um, it was at Berkeley yep. and, uh, yeah. And it was, uh, it was a, an, uh, an interesting time, lots of uh, intellectual discussion. And uh, I remember you were presenting results, I think, early bicep results. Yeah, it was designed a bicep. We were about to commission it at the South Pole. And uh, that was right a couple months before we actually ended up shipping it out of town and bring it down there. And, you know, I have to say they did a pretty good job, the organizers, because the sub, I think the subtext of the of the symposium was to identify Nobel caliber uh, discoveries. And, uh, you know, at least between the, between the two of us, uh, we have one Nobel prize. Uh, right. And so I think they did a good job with that. And, yeah. and I was thinking about you and I was preparing for the show and uh, there's a quote and I have it in my book uh, and you're a major character in the book, as you know, uh, but in the book, I say a quote from T.S. Eliot, who said, who's a Nobel prize winner in literature. He said, the Nobel is a ticket to one's funeral. No one has ever done anything after he got it. Now, I have to say, I think you're a counterexample to this laureate, Elliot. Uh, hopefully rumors of my demise have been greatly exaggerated. <laughs> <laughs> but I remember, the other thing I remember about you is every conference where we've ever been at together, I always note that you you listen with one ear, but you're always typing, you're always working, you're always thinking, pondering. And I wonder, you know, first question I have, you know, because I, I want to get into some of the weeds, technical weeds, but I think I, I asked my listeners for some questions for you. And, and a lot of them want to know what's it like personally what kind of routines, what kind of habits. And, and so first of all, can you, uh, can you just tell a little bit about uh, where you grew up, where you're from, and uh, talk, talk us through a, a day in the life of, of Adam Reese. Um, sure. So I grew up uh, in New Jersey, um, kind of central New Jersey, uh, you know, pretty normal, I guess I would say typical um, uh, period uh, played a lot of soccer uh, in school you know hung out with friends was always interested in science though without a doubt and certainly the big um, I would say catalyst for me really was a summer program um, that uh, they ran in New Jersey called the Governor's School of Science and uh, so they pick a hundred students throughout the state to come for a month during the summer between I think junior and senior year and um, that during that time, you would take sort of advanced courses and get exposed to certain kinds of material. And at that time, I took a course in uh, relativity, my first sort of exposure to really weigh out science. And, you know, I found special relativity to be just mind-blowing. I mean, I thought it was just, I mean, anybody who ever takes you know, a little relativity knows, uh, or anybody who's watched Star Trek knows these concepts of, you know, aging, changing as you travel through space at great speeds and lengths contracting. And that whole thing seems like science fiction, and yet that's the real science. So that got me pretty fired up uh, to pursue physics. And uh, then I went to uh, MIT, uh, got my uh, PhD at Harvard, um, and uh, worked my way from uh, Berkeley as a postdoc to the Space Telescope's 
Science Institute and Johns Hopkins. Um, and uh, a typical day for me, I, I sort of wear two hats. Uh, I work on calibrating the Hubble Space Telescope, which uh, I really enjoy and is uh, important for the kind of work I do. And then uh, I teach at Johns Hopkins. I teach the sort of big intro to astro, sort of astro 101 sort of course. Um, I have a number of postdocs and graduate students, and mostly we're just engaged in research, trying to understand the nature of the universe. And a question that uh, people wanted me to ask is, what would you do if you weren't an astronomer in the parallel universe? Uh, wow, that's uh, yeah, that's tough. Um, I really like history quite a lot. So I was a minor in history. Um, I had certainly thought uh, about something uh, in that world. Um, I also have a number of friends who made the jump from doing data analysis uh, about the universe to data analysis of uh, various kinds of financial or market data. Um, and uh, I don't know. I mean, there's so many interesting things out there. Uh, it's hard to say. Mm-hmm. And uh, another kind of this is the Barbara Walters section. So you know, yeah. if you break down in tears, um, <laughs> I'll edit that out. Um, outside of work, you mentioned soccer. Yeah. Do you still play that? What kind of hobbies do you have outside? Or yeah, so I like things? sports. Um, I uh, I love music, um, and so I spend a lot of time listening to music, um, movies, books. Uh, also, uh, I have a young family, um, mm-hmm. two kids, uh, third grade and. Uh, 10th grade. And so, you know, uh, there's, uh, as we all know, especially during this time, there's a lot of homeschooling going on. Um, so I'm, you know, interested in quite a lot of, uh, things. And, uh, in terms of how you got to where you're at and career wise, et cetera, what, what would you attribute it more to? Is it something that you had innately or was something that was, um, kind of brought out in you, maybe by an educator or a mentor? Well, first of all, did you have mentors? I, I know Bob Kirsch, right. uh, Kirshner, et cetera, was your mm-hmm. PhD advisor, right? Uh, and we are, uh, we are friends as well. And, uh, he's a w- renowned for his mentorship. Um, but, um, have you had mentors, mentors yeah. in other fields? I, of I mean, I've been very fortunate. I've had wonderful mentors and I've also been lucky to be at some great institutions and to work with fantastic facilities uh, and even great colleagues, even people mm. who weren't, weren't formally my mentor. Uh, but uh, I was on one very large team in the beginning, the high Z supernova team. And there were some really great mentors, just to sort of, you know, you learn the way science is done uh, was so important. But, you know, I would say for me, uh, curiosity, a very strong curiosity has been a driving force. Um, you know, I don't consider myself the smartest person in the field, uh, but uh, I feel like I make up for it in uh, being fairly dogged in uh, my pursuit of uh, puzzles. Yeah. Yeah. As I said, I mean, literally, I don't know of, of anyone who has a harder, you know, working reputation than you. And uh, in terms of actually just witnessing you, you know, they say a man's character, a woman's character is revealed when they think nobody's looking. I remember once, you know, watching, I was driving down the street uh, near a synagogue that I was going to, and I saw the rabbi pull out and I was wondering, you know, is he going to cross the double yellow line? Nobody's watching, you know, he had to go the opposite and he didn't, he waited for the, you know, I was like, you know, that's yeah. a true sign. So I think it's certainly true that you have that. I wonder, you know, when you get to the high, and this will be kind of the last question. Well, there's one more question from my wife that she wants me to ask you. But um, Do you ever get this, you know, in academia, we have this kind of hunger games that I call the academic hunger games, where you start off, you know, you're at MIT, one of the most competitive places in the world, then you have to beat out, you know, get good grades there, get letters of recommendation, go to graduate school, get a good, uh, you know, thesis project, work really hard, write some papers, get first author, do this, get a postdoc, get a faculty job, and then eventually the Nobel Prize or get promoted. Um, Do you ever feel like that scheme is maybe broken or detrimental mental health wise? And I'll have one follow up to that. But yeah, let me, how do you feel? I think that that is not a great scheme. Mm -hmm. um, As you describe, I feel lucky in that I did not feel compelled by that scheme. Um, Mm -hmm. Early on, I decided science was really interesting to me and I would pursue it as long as it was fun and engaging, but that I wouldn't pursue it, you know, uh, for, you know, checking certain boxes along some path. It was not part of my uh, success plan that I had to even, you know, 
become a professor. I, I sort of wanted to get a PhD and spend some time in the field. Um, and so I think that if people find themselves uh, trying to, you know, check boxes, you know, complete a list to get to a certain place, um, they're probably in the wrong field because uh, science is a lot of fun if you're driven by your own sort of curiosity and passion. I would say like most things, most occupations. Um, and so, you know, if you feel that way, you might work really hard from the outside. People will think you're working hard, but, you know, from the inside, uh, you might feel like you never work a day in your life because, you know, if what you're doing is so compelling, interesting, and, you know, as I said, we're blessed that science is one of those kinds of fields that uh, draws people who are just sort of curious and passionate. You know, we don't have to, um, you know, undertake some of the things that we do in science. We do them because we want to know the answers, and other people do too. Do you ever feel this uh, this this uh, con- kind of contrasting set of emotions that some academics have told me about, and even I felt myself? You know, kind of there's a contrast between uh, fear of missing out, uh, fear of not being cited, not being credited, attributed, and then there's kind of the imposter syndrome, which is almost the opposite. Do you ever, you know, kind of, what, what are your feelings about those two conflicting emotions? Yeah, those are great questions. Um, you know, I think early on, uh, in terms of the imposter syndrome, right, I sort of realized for most of us in science, there's a, you know, very narrow niche that we really become quite knowledgeable about. And so, you know, I was able to sort of recognize, you know, it's really just that niche that I know. It's not, you know, the broader picture. And then, you know, when, um, you know, the Nobel Prize happened, um, you know, first of all, as I said, it was never really my goal or target. And second of all, I quickly realized, you know, it's not an IQ test. It's not a, it's not a, a, uh, a ranking of great physicists. It's uh, for people who, for the most part, were lucky that they were in a right place at a right time and contributed to a discovery. Um, and that really could be, you know, almost anybody in the field. And so mm-hmm. I, I feel like I, um, you know, I'm not Einstein and I uh, would never pretend to be. And uh, I'm sort of satisfied saying, uh, you know, I have expertise in a tiny niche and I was lucky. And that's, you know, the, what's the, I don't have to impersonate anybody. That's, that's the truth. So <laughs> Yeah, well, I, it's rumored that Einstein uh, made a couple of blunders that I want to get into. <laughs> uh, yes, so, we did correct some of those. That's right. Uh, so, yeah, very few people can say that they actually you know, superseded Einstein. I want to get into that. Uh, but first, I want to take a step back. Um, when did the astronomy bug, you know, so to speak, first bite you? Uh, and, and where do you view sort of your place in this history of astronomy, starting with the first optical observant, observational astronomer, Galileo, and then you and, uh, and Brian Schmidt and Saul Perlmutter won really the first Nobel Prize for an optical observational astronomy discovery, if I'm not mistaken. Right. How do you view that? Uh, is there a weightiness to that? Uh, or, or, or is it just, well, you know, like you said, you're kind of doing it for fun. You might be a, you know, pro soccer player if this wasn't. Right. <laughs> I would not have been for sure. But uh, um, yeah, so, you know, in terms of astronomy and my first interest in it, uh, you know, I was like a lot of kids, you know, standing outside, looking up at the stars and really being unable to fathom what was really out there. But, you know, it was a casual conversation I had with my dad when, you know, maybe I was seven or eight, with him pointing out that stars are so far away that what we're seeing is really the way they were millions of years ago. And some of those stars may even be gone now. And that just wrapping my head around that, this kind of image of of a star not being there, but the light traveling, it, it just, it's, just gets into those juicy issues about, um, you know, physics and these really fascinating uh, aspects of it. Um, And then in terms of uh, pursuing optical astronomy, you know, again, that's to me where some of the most interesting questions just happened to be uh, at the time that I was going to graduate school. These questions like, how old is the universe? I mean, who, who would have think in graduate school you could even begin to tackle a question like that? Or, you know, what is the ultimate fate of the universe? And then a number of things happened sort of right at the right time, the development of certain tools for uh, measuring the universe, like uh, these exploding stars called type 1a supernovae. So my thesis uh, involved improving uh, the measurements and the ability, their ability to calibrate the universe. And then that quickly led to uh, these projects that uh, our team and Saul Perlmutter's team did, which was to push those measurements further back in time and look at how the trajectory of the universe, the 
expansion rate what we thought would be slowing down. And instead, we found to our great surprise it was speeding up. Right. And in that context, you know, I want to take um, take our listeners and viewers back in time. So behind me, if you're watching on YouTube, you'll see an image of Galileo Galilei's uh, prison where he was imprisoned uh, in 1634 or so after writing the Dialogo. Um, and there's a wonderful new book we had on Mario Livio recently mm-hmm. to discuss uh, Galileo in this book. But, uh, you know, I noted when I was talking to Mario that, you know, Galileo didn't, you know, it's a pretty beautiful prison. You know, I think Mar- uh, but, you know, <laughs> Bernie Madoff would trade. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> uh, yeah. and, and what is it about astronomy, you know, or kind of the cosmological that without offense to our yeah. friends who study, you know, convective flows and condensed matter physics, you know, really excites the mind and really does things to piss off people like Einstein, when he's reputed to have said when he first saw, you know, uh, Lemaitre's uh, conjecture that there could have been a Big Bang, he said, your physics is atrocious. And uh, what is it about astronomy in particular, uh, maybe the connection to cosmology specifically, that irritates and is so provocative in your opinion? Yeah, I think that uh, cosmology uh, has the kind of audacity to address these really big questions like how did this all start and where's it all going? And first of all, you know, there are a lot of people who feel that, well, that's not a question for science. That's a question for philosophy or for religion. And, you know, there, there is a, you know, there's a certain realm in which cosmologists address these things. We don't say why there should be a universe or, you know, what one should do in the universe, but, you know, the, the sort of, um, the kinematics, the, the, the motions, the distances, these are things that we can address and, and questions of, well, how long has this been going on? And so, you know, uh, people like Fred Hoyle getting, you know, very upset at the idea of a Big Bang moment, um, you know, having a strong philosophical view about that. And so cosmology draws us to the possibility of addressing those really big questions, um, which, you know, is where uh, a lot of controversy can be as well. Yeah. Um, so moving into controversies, mm-hmm. uh, the kind of immediate aftermath of Einstein's theory of general relativity uh, in the early 1920s was something uh, which which I think would may be nice to revive as a tradition. There's something called the Great Debates, mm-hmm. and they took place not far from you uh, in Washington D.C. And this was famous these uh, Curtis Lifer debates. Uh, and you've actually written a wonderful treatment, I think, in Physics Today magazine, and and uh, you know you've done some some writing and expository work uh, for the public. Um, what, so in that context, it was really professionals debating, you know, the kind of the size and the structure and maybe the kinematics or evolution of the universe. Um, nowadays, we, um, you know, so the proof, if anybody needed it, that you, you know, aren't just resting on your laureate laurels is that, you know, you're deeply involved in pointing out that there may be a, a need for perhaps a second series of great debates. So, um, I want to I want to move now to this uh, to this article that you and I were uh, both quoted in um, in the Symmetry magazine. I think it was about a year ago, called the Nine Percent Difference, and this is really a startling discovery, uh, which I think you know you uh, in all honesty you were played you played perhaps the, the first and foundational role in bringing it at least to attention of cosmologists, and then you went through and have been doing some of the most yeoman workmanlike work towards understanding what's happening. So. Very brief. I know you've spoken about this ad nauseum, but and I'll have a link to folks in the uh, to the article in the show notes. Uh, can you explain what is this nine percent difference? Sure. Why sure. does it matter? And yeah. So uh, so you know, over the last twenty years, we have sort of arrived at what we call a standard model of cosmology. You know, this is sort of our greatest hopes and dreams is to say we understand the universe, and when we say that. We really mean we have a model, uh, a story, uh, there's physics, there's components. We can explain from the beginning to the end how the universe would expand. And I would say that's been very successful. And so ours today is called Lambda CDM, as you know, uh, stands for uh, dark energy, cold dark matter, and the other physics that we know. Um, But the truth is we don't really understand very well the nature of dark matter and dark energy. So it's very important to keep testing this model. And uh, as you know, and maybe some of your listeners know, some of the most precise measurements we get of the universe ironically occurred just after the Big Bang in the cosmic microwave background radiation. You get a very precise picture of the universe and very precise measurements of how fast it's expanding. Um, 
And, you know, it's a little bit like if you had a child, you know, they're born, maybe they're two years old, you can measure their height extremely well. Now, if we understand this model of the universe, then we ought to be able to explain then how that process continues, how the universe expands over the next 13 billion years. And we should be able to predict how fast it should be expanding today. Just like with that child, you could predict how tall they will become eventually. And then you go out and say, okay, let me actually go measure how fast the universe is expanding today. And what we're finding, I would say with pretty high consistency through multiple techniques and methods is uh, whenever we measure how fast the universe is expanding today with different methods, we always get a higher number and quite significantly so than this very precise measurement at early times coupled with the prediction based on our understanding of the universe. So it's like you predicted the height of that kid and then he or she grew to be, you know, two feet taller than, uh, than you expected. Now, that would be really weird with a, a person because we've seen many people grow. We know what the growth chart looks like, but we only have one universe. We don't get to say, well, this is what's normal for a universe. And of course, on top of that are these unknown parts, 95% of the universe in the form of dark matter and dark energy. And we don't really understand the physics of them. You know, cosmologists are very good at giving names uh, for ignorance and making it sound like we sort of know what's going on. We, we say the simplest version, the most vanilla version of dark matter and dark energy would have these properties. And what we're seeing at some level is the universe isn't quite matching that vanilla description. So, you know, is this going to tell us about new wrinkle in the universe? You know, I don't know. Um, I mean, it's a very hard problem, as you know, yeah. uh, to even understand, you know, what exactly that could be. Um, and so many of us continue to work on improving the precision of the measurements uh, and sort of this, uh, you know, the, the way science works between theorists coming up with ideas of what might explain it and experimentalists and observers like myself trying to get finer and finer measurements to sort of parse those different possibilities. And what do you say that, um, you know, there, there are a lot of tensions in cosmology, and I think, as I said in that article, you know, the field as a whole could use some good psychoanalysis, perhaps. Uh, <laughs> but there are some who say that not only is the tension overwrought, you know, perhaps there is no tension. I'm speaking of, in particular, a group in Oxford led by Subir Sarkar and others that say, you know, things like, is there really a Hubble tension. So, uh, well, right. And Sarkar actually goes even further and, and says, is there really dark energy at all? Right, right. Um, so what do you mean? I mean, he's, what is he, the lead of uh, theoretical uh, physics at, at Oxford? I mean, he's, he's, he's a very esteemed, you know, uh, professor in this field, a researcher. What, um, what do you make of, of these kinds of, of attacks yeah. from eminent scientists? Um, so, you know, the, as you know, the fundamental problem with uh, dark energy or the cosmological constant is uh, the naive explanation is 120 orders of magnitude off from our sort of naive explanation of, of what it should be or how big it should be. And so in a way that gives infinite rope to people who are going to express doubts, uh, particularly about the data um, and say, look, you know, uh, I'm going to not use this data and I won't use this data. I'm going to throw away this data. I'm just going to cherry pick this piece of the data. And I'm going to do this kind of funky analysis that one normally doesn't do, but I can do in this situation. And as I said, they sort of have infinite rope because, um, you know, it seems so preposterous that there would be, you know, this 120 order magnitude match. Uh, and yet that's what, uh, the data actually says. I mean, I'm a big believer in not censoring the data in that way. And so when uh, Subir uh, looks at the data, he uh, discards this cosmic microwave background data and baryon acoustic oscillation data and lensing data and knowledge of the mass we have of the universe and ultimately ends up with uh, the closest he can get to get away from dark energy is to actually have an empty universe where there's zero matter or uh, dark energy. And that's still uh, in tension with the data. And so, you know, I, I think we learn the most by sort of letting the data sort of guide us through the universe because um, our, our, our ideas have not been very successful sort of amnitio. Um, you know, Einstein himself, you know, was uh, sort of fooled early on in his career in trying to understand uh, the universe and how it would expand and, and uh, what the dynamics were. Yeah, and do you think, as I, you know, as as I've, you know, kind of spoken out with some other authors on and 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 intellectuals on the show, 
there is this notion that scientists are somehow immune from the very biases that make human beings human beings, such as confirmation bias, uh, you know, being one of the ones that's pretty prominent, going back all the way to Galileo, and, and even his own imprisonment was somehow related to the fact that at all costs he wanted to kind of bolster the Copernican hypothesis. Uh, even when the da- you know, the examples he used were were wrong, or and he didn't use the best data that he had already collected, as Mario points out in his most recent book. But I think nowadays, you know, we kind of have this, you know, clinging to your priors or reversion to your priors, and it's almost like the priors are becoming, you know, it's, it's almost like confirmation bias is now entering in as a part of Bayesian, you know, methodology uh, because of this priors that that one must apply. And I wonder, you know. With people like Einstein, uh, the thing about him, although it's not really clear if he actually said, you know, uh, Lambda was his biggest blunder, the cosmological term, I think Mario goes through and maybe debunks that in an earlier book. But, uh, but nevertheless, he had the magnanimity and the, and the um, intellectual honesty to say that, yeah, he was wrong about this expansion. Uh, what, do you, what do you make of the kind of um, the passion that in particular the work that you know, one does, I get these letters every day, you know, Professor Keating, I've discovered, you know, Einstein was wrong. Uh, you know, um, if you help me publish this, I'll share the Nobel Prize with you. I, I imagine you don't need those, you don't, you don't reply to too many. I answered one of those letters and it all worked out. <laughs> Fantastic. Well, you know, the I mean, Einstein, Einstein was given uh, bad information. Um, he was told uh, at, at the time that the universe was static, that it wasn't mm. expanding or contracting. And at the time, you know, astronomers didn't understand the difference between the Milky Way and the universe. And so, mm. you know, Einstein was not really a victim of his own biases so much as a victim of bad data. Mm. And, um, you know, he was trying to make the, mess, the best of bad data, given this, you know, incorrect information that the universe was static. You know, he saw a way to bring uh, balance the uh, the tendency of a universe with matter in it to start to collapse if it was static, and some way to oppose that. And he made this remarkable discovery that the gravity of empty space itself can be repulsive, can hold mm-hmm. that back. Um, you know, in a way, right? He discovered the greater possibilities, another feature of his theory of general relativity, which then, as you know, sort of went into hiding or dormant for a while uh, as we knew the universe to be expanding, that Einstein wasn't given the right uh, data at the time. And then we sort of reinvoked it. So, um, you know, I've, I've never really seen it as a blunder of Einstein. I've always sort of seen it as uh, another statement of his sort of brilliance to be able to, in 1916, you know, discover the possibility that empty space can have repulsive gravity. And for us in 1998 to say, you know, I think he was right. So, um, <laughs> well, to provide evidence that, yes. that, that it looked like he was right. Um, yeah, I always say his biggest blunder was saying it was his biggest blunder. Yeah. <laughs> Thanks to you exactly. um, and your teammates. Uh, so I'm um, showing on the screen here for those watching online uh, that this model of so-called the big crunch. And you may know there's another cosmic controversy, as our friends might say across the pond, uh, which is, you know, whether or not inflation took place. And this isn't a set of crackpots. You know, I always say the people that email me, Einstein was wrong. I always write back, well, let me know what you think about Boltzmann. You know, it's, it's always, they always choose Einstein. Like, you ever right. play Dungeons and Somebody else. Yeah, when you were... <laughs> When you're a kid, I don't know if you ever played Dungeons and Dragons, sure. but you know, you kill somebody and then you get their hit points, or you get somebody's <laughs> army and risk and you get all their armies. You know, it's right. like it doesn't work that way. Right. You uh, become right. Do you become you get Einstein's mantle if you knock Einstein right. off his mantle? And, mm. and sometimes I see that, you know, there's more than one person who's, you know, come out and said, you know, there's problems with the data, there's problems with the with the supernova data, there are these issues. I think um, you know, again, with the higher you fly, as uh, as my Italian friend told me in Italian, but I can't remember. You know, the easier you are to shoot down, uh, right. because uh, but I what people should understand, and I just want to point yeah. this out that um, you know, uh, cosmology is hard. There's no question the data uh, is difficult to acquire and analyze. What leads to consensus in our field generally is when, as you know, many different kinds of data that probe the universe in very different ways come to the same conclusion. Likewise, for theory, when 
you know, many different theorists thinking about things in very different ways come to similar conclusions. And your friends who write you these messages about, you know, I have this theory of the universe and, you know, um, and you wonder, you know, is this right? Is this person a crackpot? You know, we wonder this all the time. Uh, I tend to notice many of those people, um, each of them has a completely different idea. They don't succeed in convincing anybody else um, of their sort of you know, outlandish ideas. So, you know, this is part of the science process is we are able to reproduce the truth or reality, whereas, you know, a mistake or an error here or there is generally not reproduced in data set after data set. Likewise, with theory, um, you know, uh, uh, different uh, mathematical ideas are not um, something that you can develop and come to from a different direction, keep arriving at the same place. And so it's this, it's this reproducibility that really defines what is special, I think, about science and generally leads us to think we're on the right track. Mm. And so um, getting back to this, you know, uh, discussion of another controversy, the uh, the uh, existence or lack thereof of an inflationary epoch, this has come alongside it. Uh, I think both the discovery of dark energy and the discovery or cosmic acceleration and the discovery of inflation or things that are consistent with inflation bring up very startling conclusions about, in one sense, the very early universe, which has a concomitant um, uh, you know, kind of co-equal prediction that there, we live in a multiverse if the inflationary model is correct, uh, because it's almost impossible to develop models of inflation that don't feature multiverse-like um, extensions to them. You can, but it's very difficult, according to the two or three foremost proponents of it. And so that's led people, as it has with uh, the discovery of the accelerating universe, to speculate about the implications of the theory. I want to get into that a little bit later. But first, you know, on the technical side, do you feel that some of the um, these imp- implications of just acceleration itself, do you feel like they will be found to be related to, say, the inflationary epoch? I mean, they're both exponential, potential so yeah. expansions over operating over different time scales. Yeah, I'll, I'll even throw that? a third in there, which yeah. is, you know, the Hubble tension right now is the appearance that uh, there's still some sort of anomalous additional expansion. And, um, you know, uh, we feel like there could be... It, maybe as many as three episodes, you know, inflation, acceleration, and whatever's causing the Hubble tension, which could have been, you know, anomalous expansion is sort of at an in-between time shortly after recombination or before recombination. Mm -hmm. Um, These are uh, things that are not easily addressed in our understanding of gravity without invoking some kind of energy of empty space. And so, you know, it just may be that, you know, this is really an area of physics that we're just beginning to sort of scratch the surface of that, you know, uh, we see the universe go through occasional periods of this anomalous expansion. We're attributing it to excess energy in space. And, you know, maybe at some point we will understand how they have some relationship uh, between each other, you know, um, some ability to even predict or connect them. I mean, I don't, I'm not aware of it right now, but it's very compelling when you see something happen, you know, for the, certainly the second, if not the third time to start saying, you know, haven't I seen this movie before? (laughs) You know, sometimes, you know, we, you know, our colleagues, like to uh, talk about anytime you invoke something strange going on, well, you're invoking the tooth fairy and, you know, you're allowed to do that maybe once. And, you know, my question becomes, you know, how many invocations of the tooth fairy is it exactly to have inflation and acceleration and maybe even Hubble tension? tension? Is that one? Is that three? I don't, I, it's hard to count. Yeah, and certainly, you know, our colleagues are nothing if not creative in, in the <laughs> theoretical sense and coming up with ideas. And I do want to talk to you about one idea that's my pet favorite for a, resol- for a resolution potentially of the Hubble tension, and that's the existence of uh, primordial magnetic fields. And I heard talk where you gave recently on another competing YouTube channel, so I'm not going to mention his name. No, I, I just I can't pronounce his name, but but yeah cosmology lecture you get yes and, and you were sort of uh, a little bit dismissive of the idea that you know you made you made a kind of an offhand quip that you know when we were in graduate school we were you know if you can't explain something but now you may remember from my talk but we did that only because it was so hard that yeah. it was sort of like cover for for anything it was like uh and in the area we all know we don't understand there's magnetic fields right yeah. and so that it, i mean you know there's a there's a certain um 
uh, sensibility to sort of say a phenomenon we don't understand, the excess Hubble expansion, and a thing we don't understand, you know, maybe they explain each other. I, I mean, I don't well, know. Right. Well, I, I one of the leading ideas now may be that, you know, if you have primordial magnetic fields, then these can change the way the early universe operates. And this quantity we like to calculate called the sound horizon that lies underneath the ability to predict the uh, Hubble constant or expansion of the universe. Yeah, so that's, yeah, so for my little quip and retort to your quip, uh, you yes. know, as Arthur C. Clarke said, for every expert, there's an equal and opposite expert. So <laughs> for every quip, there's an equal and opposite quip. So yes. I kind of view primordial magnetic fields as the parents instead of the tooth fairy because we know that magnetic fields exist in all structures that are gravitationally bound right. today we have yet to discover a truly um you know all pervasive cosmological sure. field that's not gravitationally bound but you might i gave a talk at hopkins last last may i guess it was and i mentioned that there's a lower limit on a primordial magnetic field strength um from the non-observation of these uh tev blazers that do not mm -hmm. have these gev halos around it and so uh now the lower limit is uh, pretty breathtakingly small you talk about fine tuning it's about a micro nano gauss as i like to call it and the limits that we're making from cmb experiments such as polar bear simon's array act spt bicep etc are on the level of about a nano gauss maybe a little bit lower than that but a lot of the tests that we're looking for that probe a magnetic field strength are relying on the CMB's, what are called the CMB's power spectrum so you make mm -hmm. correlation functions you Fourier transform them mm -hmm. and you get the power spectrum uh that sort of uh, sensitive to the magnetic field to the fourth power, I believe. So it's very hard to make progress against things that scale as a fourth power. It's sort of the first measurement you do, you pick all the low-hanging fruit. Uh, but there's another complementary approach um, that we're starting to invoke with our colleagues and the Simon Observatory and other projects around the world, which is look for Faraday rotation, which is linear in the magnetic field strength. So that will produce a, a signal that would cause polarization rotation. And for those reasons, I think um, I think you need a background source for that. Well, use the CMB's E modes. So we know the CMB okay. has E modes, and then we know the plasma had free electrons. Mm -hmm. And so the question is, do those fields survive? To and it's exactly the epoch that you care about. You always have this uh, really prescient, um, you know, observation that you know. How do you define the early universe? Well, it's when neutrinos are important. Exactly. And, and I think you could say, you know, if you could find these magnetic fields, which are ubiquitous, I mean, we have them in our yeah. bodies and we have them in our solar system and beyond. So, you know, if you could find that, I think that would require the least modification to the laws of physics. I always feel like, you know, Nima Akani Hamed always says, like, people that look for violations of the standard model, people like me, uh, you know, looking for these departures from, from the so-called standard model, really, you know, maybe going down a fool's errand because it's very hard to break the standard model. It is, um, yeah. But that's even when we talk about things like the Hubble tension, you know, we're looking for a wrinkle, not, you know, uh, a paradigm change. And so, like you said, something like a magnetic field uh, in the early universe, um, you know, I, I think Probably magnetic fields uh, is sort of in the same position that the cosmological constant was 20, 30 years ago, where That's people right. would say, well, I don't. I don't know really how to calculate or figure out what it should be a priori. I guess it's zero. Yeah. <laughs> and, right. uh, you know, zero wasn't a good guess. And it was not really, we didn't have a profound reason why that ought to be. But, you know, physicists like simplicity. So if something isn't rearing its ugly head at the moment, right, then we right. say, well, it's zero. So maybe magnetic fields primordial have been, you know, zero for so long. And then at some point we'll go, you know, actually, we <laughs> don't. There's this meme that I know that part of your productivity stems from the fact that you don't use social media. Yes. <laughs> Unlike me. Yes. Uh, so there's a meme on Twitter. That's my, that's that's my secret, secret weapon. <laughs> <laughs> there's a meme on social media that when everybody says something about like new cure for COVID or whatever, cancer, and that you should always add, just say in rats or, you know, just say mice. There's <laughs> always in mice and it's always like 8,000 cups yes. of coffee equivalent in a mouse will kill you. Right. Yeah. Um, so I always say, you know, the equivalent in cosmology should be just say dust. And yes. you know, one of the things I did the research in my uh, for my book, I came upon some papers that you wrote with Bob uh, uh, Kirshner and others back in the 90s and mid 90s. Again, very, um, uh, very trenchantly observing that there could be prosaic explanations for what we were seeing. And I wonder, you know, and, and even things that come about now, like this tabby star, 
or you see things, you know, these, these Omuramura or things like, like you see all this evidence for the, literally the litter of the cosmos, basically dust. I interviewed Andrewian, who's Carl Sagan's uh, mm-hmm. widow on Friday, last Friday as well. And, uh, you know, she, we were just talking about, you know, the, the pale blue dot is really this speck of dust floating on a sunbeam. And it's really just highlights the pervasion, the pervasive kind of ability for dust to stymie observations on one hand, uh, and on the other hand, to kind of point directions to new fields of research. So I wonder, do you, you've done some research in, in, a, in a really wonderful paper I'll put a link to as well, which is just like this, this um, you're just doing the work. I mean, you're saying like this Cepheid crowding. I, I don't want you right. to get into it now, but you're actually looking at the, you know, at the systematic errors. So, so the difference between a, a, a statistical error, which can be reduced with more data, and right. a s- systematic error that's intrinsic to your system or the cosmos itself uh, is very profound. And it's much harder, I think, to, to get rid of these systematic errors. Um, so are there still systematic errors that you would point to? I mean, I always wonder, like, how well do we know the astronomical unit? <laughs> you know, like, what if it's off by 1% or half a percent? Pretty good with that. We've done yeah. radar ranging <laughs> off the sun. You know, the way you find systematic errors is you uh, give talks and you listen to your colleagues and your colleagues generally ask good questions. And instead of just dismissing them, ah, there can't be that, right? You kind of, after the talk, okay, make a little note of that, you know, and you sit around, you try to think of ways to answer your colleagues. Mm -hmm. Um, And, you know, they might seem at the time, especially, you know, when you're first starting out in research, oh, those are such unfair questions, you know, how can... Or when you're about to publish a paper, that's right. (laughs) Right, that's right. But, you know, you really uh, will do well to listen to those critics and then try and come up with an experiment or a measurement or a test. And if it succeeds, go back to them and say, you know, is this convincing or not? Um, And then, you know, continue the process basically uh, until, you know, we'd like to say, and it's true, you know, Carl Sagan said, extraordinary claims require extraordinary evidence. And so, you know, I always, I, I thought that I actually had his daughter on and, and uh, as well as Michael Shermer on yeah. recently. And I said, you know, I, I don't like all of a sudden my, my students comes to me with some data and I say, that's data, but I need extraordinary, like <laughs> <laughs> it's either good or it's bad. It's just how much, how tight in the kind of Bayesian right. prior to But it's it. right. And in a way, how large a claim are you making? How, you know, how much uh, supports this? And so, you know, I've been uh, fortunate to be around a few things that required uh, extraordinary evidence. And it's, mm-hmm. you know, it's hard and it takes, you know, it's more than any one investigator or team or group can do. It takes really the community, uh, you know, firing at things in different ways. Um, and, you know, we've all seen, you know, very well, the, you wrote a book about uh, a result that, you know, uh, you know, sought the extraordinary evidence and, you know, learned about, uh, you know, the difficulties of dust. And, you know, the community is pretty good at, you know, digging into these things, asking these questions. And, you know, it, it's rare, I, I don't know, in my experience, that something that's just flat out wrong survives that onslaught very long. Mm-hmm. Yeah, exactly. So I want to turn now, um, uh, we've uh, discussed that. I, I, I you, I think you go through in your talk on this cosmology channel, I'll put a link to it, you know, what your kind of pet theory is. I mean, to the extent that you're willing to even say there's a, there's a pet theory, but um, I've always wondered like, what would you, how much would you pay for a supernova to go off at like redshift of five? I mean, wouldn't that just settle everything in your field? <laughs> well, say yeah, it would be nice. I, yeah. you know, it might even be better if one went off in the Milky way because ah, if it went off in the Milky that? way, we could measure parallax to it. Right. And mm-hmm. so we would, we'd skip some of these steps. We use intermediaries to calibrate things. But, you know, if one went off, I mean, not too close. I don't want to singe anybody. <laughs> exactly. I was thinking, like, does he want to take out some colleagues? No, there? no. <laughs> well, so if, if I could beam it at certain places. But uh, anyway, no, um, you know, if if we had some in the Milky Way, we'd measure parallax and we would mm-hmm. calibrate these great standard candles, you know, even better probably than we have. Mm-hmm. Yeah, exactly. Um, so uh, we talked about uh, different different uh, tensions and so forth. Uh, any other tensions that are particularly interesting to you? Or, yeah. Or- I, you know, there are, I mean, you know, to my view, the Hubble constant tension is probably the largest in significance, but there are other kind of, you know, what we call curiosities, mm-hmm. um, you know, uh, there's something I've always noticed in the cosmic microwave background fit the uh, the power spectrum uh, as a function of frequency or L, um, you tend to get somewhat different parameters over different ranges of L. So when two different experiments 
basically measure the power spectrum over the same range of L, they tend to get consistent results, which tells me that the experiments actually look pretty good. It makes me wonder if the underlying model is the thing that actually changes with L because, mm. you know, and you've probably seen this as well. You look at the cosmological parameters around L of 1,000 and maybe you get a Hubble constant closer to 70. Then you do it more like at L of 2,000 and it kind of drifts down to 64-ish. Then you go out to even higher L, 2,000, 3,000, drifts back up into the low 70s. And, you know, as I said, when uh, other experiments remeasure the same patch of sky on the same frequency, they get consistent results. So I'm not as concerned about the experiments uh, as I am wondering. And all these these sorts of hints and tensions are more at the two and a half sigma level. They're not something that all on their own you would draw a lot of attention to. But if you're trying to solve a larger puzzle uh, and you found a, a solution or a story that weaved in a few of these things. So yeah. you know, some of the people who work on... Um, you know, ways of altering the the composition of the early universe have made claims. Not only does it solve the Hubble tension, but uh, it uh, explains some of these variations with L in the parameters. Or not only does it uh, explain the Hubble constant, but it helps with something called the sigma-8 tension, which uh, has yeah. to do with the sort of chunkiness of matter in the universe. Some things make it worse, in which yeah. case, you know, you go, well, that doesn't sound very promising. But so, you know, you do well to pay attention to sort of all these clues. You know, a lot of people say, well, it's not, you know, five sigma. I don't want to hear about it. Well, yeah, but if you're trying to actually figure out the next step, you, you know, you piece together a bunch of three and four sigmas and, and, you know, if you can find a story that ties them all together, then, you know, can have the equivalent significance. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, I think about that in the context of, you know, these topology measurements. I did a podcast with Jan Eleven who wrote a book mm -hmm. called, you know, How the Universe Got Its Spots about the topology and structure of the universe. Those are still outstanding questions. Yeah. Axis of evil, different yep, axis of evil, the dark spot, the cold spot. Yeah. Um, yeah. I mean, there's a, you know, there's certainly a few funnies that are hanging around and, you yeah. know, I think smart people, you know, go to talks and, you know, write, write in their notebook and draw a circle around the funnies and they have their own collection of these are the ones I believe look legitimate. And, you know, they spend time thinking, how can I tell a story that weaves through a number of these? Yeah, that's wonderful advice. And that segues nicely into a segment I'm going to call the big picture segment where we take a step back. Uh, I mentioned that uh, we met first time 2005 at this Templeton, John Templeton Foundation uh, search for young scholars. And, you know, of course, the Templeton Foundation was is heavily associated with uh, searches for uh, for spirituality and, uh, and the consilience between science and religion. Not that it's to the exclusion of atheists who won the Templeton Prize. Uh, but one question that I've had, you know, for, for you, uh, the character of your discovery is a little bit different than, say, a blue LED or even a transistor or something like that or explaining a phenomenon uh, that was known to exist, sort of retrodicting it um, as had been done in, in different cases throughout history. Um, it was really a serendipitous discovery. I mean, you weren't looking for it. I claim in the book, as you might remember, that, you know, those are the purest discoveries. Uh, but what I'm curious now in relation to Templeton is, you know, does your work have any influence on you, maybe this, the way that you think about your place in, in the history of science, or, or does it affect you personally, religiously, philosophically in any way? Uh, that's a good question. That's a really good question. Um, you know, I would say not very much. I mean, I certainly feel lucky or fortunate to be living in interesting times, as Confucius says. And, you know, I think there's no question that, you know, we will look back on the last 20 years in cosmology as a very special time. You know, we, we like to call it the era of precision cosmology. But you and I know, right, we went to graduate school and at the time people were saying, yeah, nobody knows whether, uh, you know, there's enough matter to close the universe or not. What The, the age of the universe. Yeah, nobody knows, too. you know, what the ultimate fate of the universe is, whether it's going to recollapse or not. You know, nobody knows, right, the age of the universe and the expansion rate to a factor of two. And I don't know about you, but I just sort of thought, like, if you show up in a class and they tell you nobody knows these things, you know, probably nobody will ever know those things. I mean, that's just like they're the swords and the stones that are, you know, cast in there, you know, a thousand years ago, and you're just going to have to live with it. And, uh, you know, you and I got to see a lot of those topple over the last 20 years. I mean, we don't know the answers to everything, but I would say we went from 
you know, almost like the pre-Magellan view of the world to, you know, post, ah, okay, this is the, this is the basic parts on the map. And, mm. uh, you know, I just feel lucky that, you know, we've been around during that time. I, I would be uh, pretty much just as happy just to have gotten to witness it and just see it and learn about it and get to go back to the last class and go, actually, we know this stuff now. Now, now we know this. Right. Yeah. So, you know, we're, we all, I think as, as humans are fortunate to be around during the times when we've learned so many profound things that, you know, address people's basic curiosity about the universe. Absolutely. Uh, so these are questions from lay persons. Uh, first one is, do you feel differently in your approach to science now that you have won the Nobel Prize, or do you still feel the same as before? Um, I don't think uh, I, I have changed my approach to it very much. Um, you know, it maybe to a small degree, it inspires me or reminds me, wow, you never know what's lurking around any corner, you know, do uh, a basic measurement, do a basic test, uh, you know, you might find something. Um, but no, I mean, I think, you know, science is science. I mean, whether you're, whether you're doing, you know, your physics uh, freshman lab uh, experiment or, you know, something with the Hubble Space Telescope. I mean, there's mm -hmm. a process, you state a hypothesis, you collect evidence uh, for or against as you find out when you analyze it. I mean, that's that procedure. It's a beautiful uh, procedure. It's, you know, science really has, I think, just about the best way of getting to truth and things. I mean, we can't answer everything, but, you know, our procedure, if we follow it, is really Really, really powerful. That's right. Yeah, absolutely. I agree 100%. Uh, last question about the Nobel Prize, since I cannot resist. I've got you here. Uh, I can ask anything I want. You don't have to answer anything. Is there anything about the Nobel Prize that you would change, or is it pretty much okay as it is? Uh, yeah. Um, I guess the thing I would change is the size of the group that can be recognized. I mean, mm -hmm. you know, I think it's, uh, you know, there's, this is a holdover from a time when science was literally done by a few people that, you know, it probably was not very limiting in the year 1900 to say, all right, what are we going to pick? And we don't want it to include more than three people. But today, as you and I both know, science is done generally in large groups or teams uh, working together. Um, and, uh, you know, that kind of division of labor allows us to do bigger and better, more exciting things. We build off of each other's work. We don't just start out and like an Einstein say, I was just, you know, having a beautiful thought and I realize something amazing. Um, you know, we really were like, I went to so-and-so's talk and I heard this thing and I thought I'll, I'll do one thing a little more. Mm -hmm. So, you know, I wish that the Nobel Prize could go to uh, recognize teams, okay. uh, you know, yeah. sort of without limit in size. Fantastic. Yeah, the, the Peace Prize does that already, as I, you know, and you and I know. Um, okay, final questions, uh, and then I can uh, take questions from the audience, meaning you. Uh, first question I have is, uh, is there's a concept uh, that Alfred Nobel, of course, was aware of when he endowed his prize of a will, a material will, where he left his, his monetary and other possessions, uh, physical possessions to other people. But there's also a concept called an ethical will, which is uh, also composed comprised in, within of uh, Alfred Nobel's will, which is which is a notion that uh, you have a certain set of values or higher higher thoughts or wisdom that you want to communicate. And for Alfred, of course, it's the famous catechism of the of the Nobel Prize uh, themselves, which is for the betterment of mankind. And these discoveries should should agitate towards not just in the Peace Prize, but uh, but even in the Physics Prize, is to better mankind. Uh, so I want to ask you: in uh, in 120 years uh, of life, uh, you leave your ethical will, not your material will, uh, but what do you leave in your ethical will? Yeah, um, you know, I, I think the best sort of guiding advice or light that I think comes directly from science, from physics, from sort of everything I've gotten to experience is to be curious, that curiosity, it's sort of the antithesis, unfortunately, of what I think many people in the world suffer from today, which is a kind of extreme ideology where, you know, that's sort of the opposite of curiosity. You go and you say, you know, I know everything already, and I'm just going to beat other people over the head until they know it too. And it never works out that way. Mm -hmm. Scientists go in with a curiosity and then you actually open your eyes and actually learn about the way the world actually works. And often you're surprised. I mean, in our Nobel work, we were extremely surprised about, you know, what the universe was actually doing. And so I feel like as long as people in the future can hold on to that curiosity to go out, 
sort of everyday question their assumptions and go and look to see, you know, what is real, what is right, what is reality, what is rational, um, you know, that they'll be well served. Hmm. Very nice. So then last uh, of these questions, actually, there's a second question. So that's kind of what you would leave in time. Now I want to ask you, hearkening to uh, Sir Arthur C. Clarke's uh, famous movie, 2001 Space Odyssey, uh, there are, of course, these uh, these structures. So we're not quite sure what they are. They're these monoliths that uh, that actually exist and are meant to be encountered by, by human beings, perhaps. And uh, in fact, some of them drive the plot line forward. Uh, I've asked many people this question uh, about if you had to make a billion-year time capsule like such an object, uh, what kind of things would you put on it or in it? Um, it could be material. It could be, you know, it could be uh, an equation. I'm going to put up an image that um, that uh, some uh, friend of mine have, su- have suggested that they would put up. It's based on the, the famous wall. Uh, this is at mm. Stony Brook University. It's kind of it's actually made by Eric Weinstein's uh, team. Yes, I've and seen it, that. Yeah, you can actually go to his portal website yeah. and click on it, and it takes you through. Now, some people have said that some of these equations would be what they carve into the wall, into their right. monolith. What would Adam Reese carve into his? You know, um, there's this very compelling idea I've seen before about storing all the seeds of all the, you know, every kind of uh, plant vegetation that's ever yeah. lived. and you right. Consider the complexity of the process that evolution went through to realize each of those. Um, you know, I might put, um, you know, an example of a seed, a kind of Noah's Ark of uh, yeah. <laughs> the plant world um, into my monolith. Uh, the equations, of course, are very appealing, but if somebody took that answer already, yeah, I'm going to have to go right. with seeds. That's, that's <laughs> cheating, right? Yeah, so the seeds actually that connects nicely to Andurian's book. She talks about, you know, the uh, Russian scientist who first came up with this idea. In fact, during the yeah. siege of Leningrad, I believe, when they could have, they starved to death, many people starved to death, they were still collecting seeds for this project. Uh, and they, you know, they could have eaten them, they could have done whatever, and that, yet they did so yeah, you're among uh, very, very esteemed uh, intellects throughout history in that, in that choice. Last question uh, also harkens to Sir Arthur C. Clarke, and that's actually the name of the podcast. Yeah. Uh, the name of the podcast is Into the Impossible, which is yeah. Arthur C. Clarke's third law. His first law is any sufficiently advanced technology is indistinguishable from yes. The second yes, one, one I already favorite. said. Yeah. Yep. And the third one is the only way to find out what's possible is to venture beyond them a bit into the impossible. So my question to Adam is going now, we're, we went forward in time. Let's go back in time. What would you tell sort of a 20-year-old, 30-year-old Anna Maurice? Uh, uh, what wisdom would you say that seemed po- impossible to you at the time, yeah. but then you went ahead and did it? Yeah. Um, you know, to be very honest, um, you know, I I knew I liked science. I found this subject very fascinating, but I didn't really think there'd be a place or a career, or so, you know, an actual way to do science, to be there very long. I, I just thought these are great courses to take. I love going to, you know, my physics courses and I love learning about these things, but, you know, you can't. I mean, you know, at some point I got to, you know, grow up and get a job. And, uh, and I guess I would say to myself, you know, keep following your passion. I know it's cliche, but you know, in my case, it was literally true. Um, you know, don't give up uh, until, you know, the door has been slammed a hundred times. Um, and so, you know, I guess it would be that. That's great. Okay, Adam, I think that brings us to the end of our discussion. Uh, are there any other things that I could have asked you, should have asked you, didn't ask you that you'd like to bring up? Um, uh, let's see. So what, uh, what happened? So you won. So when we were at that, uh, uh, contest, um, you won first prize and I think you got some prize money or something. What'd you do with the, what'd you do with the prize money? Oh, I spent it on my yacht. Uh, the, the, the SS key to, no, uh, what did I do with that? Uh, well, actually, to be honest, I did. Um, so I'm a practicing Jew. I'm not an Orthodox Jew, but we have a, uh, a tradition, a mitzvah, if you will, to give away 10% of our, uh, of our winnings. And I did do that. I think it was like 20 grand actually. And this is in 20, 2005 dollars, right. not the funny money we use today. Uh, I think I gave some of it away and I think I did buy, um, I think I did buy a pretty nice bike. I actually still have the bike that I bought and it was pretty fancy. And I can't remember it was before kids. So, you know, I guess <laughs> I probably would all be gone now, you know, on some yeah. iPads or whatever. Yeah. But, uh, What'd you do with your uh, share of the Nobel Prize? Uh, oh yes, uh, that's a great question. Uh, I guess you know money's kind of fungible. You sort of yeah. like 
know, what do I do with this piece of money? Um, you know, believe it or not, I mean, it's a lot of money, but, uh, you know, it's still at the level you go, well, you know, if both my kids go to college and, you know, uh, want to retire someday or whatnot, you know, better kind of, you know, keep that in the bank. So, you know, I didn't do too many dramatic things with it. Okay, great. Any other things you want to discuss before we uh, sign off? Hopefully we'll get another chance to do this again. Yeah, no, stay safe. Yeah, thanks, Adam. Adam, thank you so so uh, so much. Sincerely, uh, you are again a role model, even for people that are basically your age, like me. Uh, that the work that you do has great meaning, and the fact that you do it with such consistency, regularity, you have great habits and these tactics and so forth that we talked about. Um, you're really, uh, you're really one of the one of the menchiest menches that I know, and and I want to just thank you for sharing so much of your time with us today. Thank you. Thanks. Take care. Any sufficiently advanced technology is indistinguishable from magic. If you enjoyed this episode of Into the Impossible, please subscribe, comment, share, rate, and review. For a chance to win a free copy of our most recent guest's newest book, send a screenshot of your review to info at imagine.ucsd.edu. We appreciate hearing from you and are always open to your suggestions for future episodes. For more information, go to imagination.ucsd.edu. Find us on Twitter at ImagineUCSD. Watch us on YouTube. Listen on iTunes. Into the Impossible is a production of the Arthur C. Clarke Center for Human Imagination in the Division of Physical Sciences at the University of California, San Diego. Eric Veery, Director. Brian Keating, Co-Director. Patrick Coleman, Associate Director. Produced by Stuart Valko.